The opposite of fear is bravery. Hmm. Nope. The opposite of fear is curiosity. Is the glass half empty? Is it half full? That misses the point. Elevating curiosity will help you see and understand what's in the glass. This is Applied Curiosity Lab Radio, the podcast of curiosity. In each episode, Becky Saltzman interviews unconventional thinkers and doers in her unconventional way to dissect and uncover what you can use to see things others miss, make better decisions, and apply your talents in new and profound ways. Elevate curiosity, escape the boundaries of ordinary. The problem with wine is it's it's organic and it's still changing, it's evolving. Where if you take your tequila, that does once it's bottled, it's incredibly stable and it could sit there for 30 years and it won't change one bit. Hello, curiosity seekers and adventurous thinkers, perhaps people who are interested in revolutionizing the way we think. Welcome to Applied Curiosity Lab Radio, episode 11. I'm your host. Becky Saltzman. And today I am chatting with sommelier, wine expert, David LeClaire. And I'm really interested in delving into the world of wine because I'm kind of fascinated with the intrigue of wine and the mystique of wine and the history of wine and also just the practical aspects of wine, which is particularly interesting considering that I am a brown drink drinker. And I confess that to David right up front. And it's not really that I don't like wine. Actually, I love wine, but it just does not love me. Turns out that I don't do that well with grapes. So it's not about the sulfides or the histamines or any of those kinds of things. But still, I am fascinated with the world of wine. And I also think that there are a lot of interesting insights that apply to other things that we can glean from wine. So I wanted to take a peek into this world with someone who really knows what's what. So a little background about David. David is a certified sommelier from the Court of Master Sommeliers. Maybe you know all about sommeliers, but in case you don't, the very short answer is that a sommelier is a highly trained and certified wine expert. Of course, you will learn all about this in this episode. David currently serves as wine ambassador for the Esquin Wine and Spirits. He was the founder of Wine World and Spirits, and that was the largest independent wine store in the Northwest. It was awarded the 2013 Independent Retailer of the Year by the Washington Wine Commission. It was featured in the Seattle Metropolitan Magazine. He's also the founder of the popular wine club, Seattle Uncorked, where they produce many fun, engaging, and interesting wine, spirit, and beer events and fundraisers. For 10 years, David served as the wine director at Seattle's famed Alexis Hotel and Painted Table Restaurant. He's currently an instructor at Bellevue College and North Seattle College, and he serves as a judge for various wine competitions, including Oregon and Seattle Wine Awards, Northwest Wine Summit, and Seattle Magazine's Washington Wine Awards. He is a wine program and marketing consultant, and he's a freelance writer for the Washington Tasting Room magazine. What do we talk about and what does someone like me, who is a brown drink drinker, have to ask someone like David, who is a wine aficionado? Well, a lot of things because I'm curious about wine as I'm curious about a lot of things, even if I'm not completely immersed in the culture. And wine is a culture. And we talk about that. We talk about David going from his first Hannah sip of wine to falling in love with wine and eventually making a life about wine. We start with the basics. What is wine and why is it art? 
What's a sommelier and what are the different types and levels? And what do master level sommeliers know that others do not? And why it might not matter? We even get into how much money sommeliers make. So if you're thinking of going for broke and getting your sommelier certification and moving on up the ranks, you will know the range that you can expect to make. We talk about wine points and how points and scores are assessed because I'm always curious about that and how we know if someone, particularly a known wine expert, rates a particular wine a particular way, how do we know whether we can use that to assess whether we're going to like that wine or not? And how do sommeliers use wine expert points, scales, and ratings to understand wine? And then some very basic things, which I really appreciate, which is what should you pay attention to when you're handed a bottle of wine at a restaurant? For example, what do you do with the cork? What should you look for? What should you smell? What should you feel? I like those kind of practical, actionable tips. Also, like, what's the best way to shop for wine? How does pricing work in a restaurant? And how do you send wine back in a way that is considerate and also appropriate? And I watched a show, I think it was a 60-minute show, actually, and the Black Sheep of the Koch brothers is a big wine collector and collects these multi-million dollar bottles of wine that are hundreds of years old. And he was involved in a major bust of a wine scammer who was essentially plagiarizing these bottles of wine and selling them to hapless collectors. And Christie's auction house was involved. It was really kind of an interesting expose and a look at how people collect things that evidently they can't even drink because we learn about how long you can keep a bottle of wine before it really goes bad, and it ain't 200 years. Whether you love wine or you're curious about what people find so intriguing about wine and the mysterious culture of wine, you're going to enjoy this episode. And now I bring you my conversation with sommelier David LeClaire. Hi, David. I am so glad you're here, and I'm excited to talk to you. Pleasure to join you. Thank you. Okay, I have a confession before we start that (laughs) I, I am a brown drink drinker. And I don't quite remember the first time I started to fall in love with tequila. It's a little blurry, but I do distinctly remember when my love affair with scotch began. And my question is, do you remember the first time you tried wine or do you remember when your love affair with wine began? Well, that's not the same answer. So (laughs) it's pretty opposite. The first time I tried wine, well, I was a little kid. It was in my parents' living room and my dad would give us little sips of kind of sweet wine. It's just what they would drink back then. And I couldn't say I was in love with it. I just wanted to do what the grown-ups did. First time I ever really tried dry wine, which I was in the restaurant business. And I remember they opened a fancy bottle of Cabernet and I tried it and I thought it was the most disgusting thing I'd ever put in my mouth. And that to, to be a wine guy now, that's all I do. It's hard to believe that that day I would have ever thought I would end up in the wine industry when I took that one sip because it was pretty heinous. When did your love affair with wine begin then? Well, you know, it's a little more of an organic thing. You know, I know some people will say that they had this one particular bottle and it just totally blew their mind. And after that, the light shone and they they knew that this is what they needed to do. For me, I was in the restaurant industry for a really long time. And when you work in high-end restaurants, they always would expect you to know the product, whether it's the food, whether it's the alcohol, whether it's wine or whether it's service, you have to know your stuff. And so over time, just the repeated training and exposure and more training and more exposure and more opportunities to meet winemakers and go to wineries and slowly my palate kind of developed to where I started appreciating it and enjoying it and not just learning about it, but 
finding it to be something that was exciting and intriguing. But it took a long time. So it wasn't like this one particular day. It was really more of a kind of an evolution. That makes sense. I have tried very much. It's not that I don't like wine. I actually love wine and have made a concerted effort. It's just that it does not love me. That's been the biggest challenge. And for the most part, I haven't met an alcohol or a good alcohol that I don't like. So I guess wine is no different, but it doesn't like me. My question, what is wine? Wow. Well, depends on how you want to answer that. There's a literal sense. It's fermented grape juice, so it doesn't sound very romantic when you put it that way. But really, if you were to take it from a, from that to a, a different interpretation, it's really more of a of an art. Just like cooking, you're transporting something from being just a, a piece of produce or a piece of fish to a delicious experience. And so really, the art of making wine is a much more intriguing and complicated dance than just putting in some yeast and some grape juice and saying, hey, bada bang, we got some wine. And you are a sommelier. So what is a sommelier? Can you briefly describe the different types and levels and the requirements and and what it is? Sure. But the bottom line is, is that there's a lot of jobs within the wine industry that require people to know the product. And so the people that are salesmen, the people that are waiters, the people that are, you know, winemakers, they all have to know the product, but they don't necessarily have a certification that says that this particular body has endorsed you as somebody who, you know, knows wine. So there's lots of different kinds of certifications out there, but for the most part, when it comes to sommeliers, they are typically trained to serve in restaurants and that is their primary focus. So if your person came up to the table and said, you know, what would be a great wine to have? I like this and I like that, but I don't see it on the menu. What do you have that's close? Or I'm having this with my food. What would you, you know, what would I have for that? Now, the levels of certification go from a regular level, like which, which is what I am, to an advanced level and then a master level. Most people in a restaurant are never going to ask you questions that are going to be, you know, that you need to have an advanced level or a master level. But it's kind of just like anything else. People that get excited about something uh, find it intriguing to continue to learn and continue to develop their knowledge and their and their palates. So they go on and, and develop these, you know, different levels of certification. But really, for the most part, a sommelier is trained to to simply understand and know and teach other people about wine. You said that there would be rarely a question asked by a patron of a restaurant that would require a master level or a higher level sommelier certification. What would be that type of question? Something like, what kind of soil do they grow these grapes in in South Africa? Knowing something as obscure as a varietal that nobody's ever heard of before, but it comes from Hungary, and they've been making wine there for two centuries. How is that grape farmed? Something like really obscure that nobody's going to care about or, or need to know. But that's the kind of information you do have to know if you want to get this master level certification. So you really have to geek out on this stuff to get that level. And sometimes, you know, in, in this business, just like anything else, people can be a little competitive and say, oh, well, you're just an advanced level sommelier or you're just a regular sommelier and this person's gone all the way to their master's. But the truth is there isn't a whole lot of application for most of that. 
But if you do go on and get that certification, it does show a lot about your character and on your diligence and your perseverance. So often that translates into jobs in places like San Francisco or New York or Vegas and some either resorts or highfalutin kind of restaurants where they're going to pay you big bucks. But most sommeliers don't make that much money. I'd say anywhere between 30, $35,000 and $70,000 is kind of where the salaries typically top out. I know that there's a Court of Masters and a Wine and Spirits Education Trust, and then there's several nation-specific and international organizations. What are these organizations and where do they come from? Who gave them the authority to bestow these sommelier certifications upon wine experts? Well, that's a great question. I don't even think they asked that in the exam, so that would be a great question. I really don't know what gave them the the credence to be able to say we're going to certify other people. But uh, most of these organizations have been around for a really long time. Really, the two big ones are International Guild, which is from Canada, and then the court, which is going to be from England. And those two are primarily what certify almost all sommeliers. So they're a little different in their in their studies and what they focus on. The International Guild is a little bit more of including spirits, cigars, service to a level that's a lot more complex than the court, which focuses primarily on wine and service. Hmm. When people refer to all of the things like points and judging and awards, categories, mm-hmm. what does all this mean and how do they come up with this stuff? Well, that again is a really vague exercise that is somewhat disregarded by most of us in the industry that are professionals as a little bit of marketing and a little hoo-ha and not something we take too seriously, but it does help sell wine. So for example, a person may be a wine writer and decide that they're going to try 100 wines in one day. And at the end of the day, they say, these were my favorite wines, and I'm going to give, associate points with them. And usually 90 points or above is kind of the turning point of when you'd say, okay, this is a above average wine. And anything below 90, you never really list the points because it seems like it's like a B or a B minus. So really 90 seems to be that kind of turning point. What makes a 90 versus a 94? That's really speculative and objective. It's not something that there's a benchmark that everybody has to do to, to get to a 92 or to a 94. So everybody has their own style. So for example, Robert Parker likes really rich, jammy, big fruity wines. So if he gives something a 95, I know that his style is weighted more towards that style of wine. So then I would say if a person likes big, juicy, jammy wines, it's probably going to appeal to them if Robert gave it a 95. You know, on the other hand, if somebody else says, oh, this is a 95 and they like old style, you know, European wines and high acid and high tannin. That's not the same kind of wine that Robert likes. So then I would say, okay, this is better for somebody else who has this palate. So the problem is the general public doesn't know these individual people's palates until they try a bunch of their wines and find out if they agree with their kind of point scale. And that can be an expensive and long process to get to that kind of knowledge and saying, I either like these kind of person scores or I don't like them. As a sommelier, what's the most common question that you're asked? And as a follow-on, what should people ask you? <laughs> I think the hardest thing for most people is they have a very hard time defining what they like. So they read a lot of descriptions on wines, but they have a hard time describing them themselves. And so the 
kind of the language around wine can be a little tricky and a little confusing. So in general, I would say that when people ask me something, they'll, they'll ask a very simple question like, what's good? Right. And the most important thing for me to find out is what they define as good. And because they have a hard time, you know, using all of the language that maybe uh, some professionals use, then what we have to do is kind of boil it down into terms they might understand. So, for example, tannin is one of the most misunderstood or, or just not understood at all uh, terms. And tannin is a dryness that can almost be like a, a chalk on your tongue. And almost all red wines will have some amount of tannin. Now, if somebody says, I like a dry wine, does that mean that they want that dry feeling on their mouth? So let's say, for example, somebody says, I like a dry wine. And then you say, okay, well, almost all wines are dry. But do you like that dryness on your tongue, like that almost a chalkiness, which is called tannin? And some people say, oh, no, I hate that. So you're like, okay, so you, you want a dry wine, but you don't really want something that has a drying effect on your mouth, right? And then they're going, yeah, yeah, that's right. So do you like wines that are lighter bodied or heavier bodied? And there's a, well, um, I like them heavier, okay? And did you want something that is going to be really fruity or do you want something that's going to taste kind of earthy? And I'm like, oh, wow, okay. And so you're essentially trying to narrow it down to the part of the world and the kind of grape that might appeal to them based on just asking them a few questions. So usually the first question is, what's good? What should I have? And then you have to find out what they want rather than saying what I like. Because what I like is really almost no impact or, or relevance unless they already know that they like the kind of wine I like. Well, if someone says that they like a dry wine, does that really mean that they like a high tannin level, but they just don't know it? Yeah, probably not. So most people don't like a lot of tannin. So that is a huge role in red wine. So it's people that like European wines, for example, have a little bit more of affinity to tannin because it's more present in their wines than it is in most American wines based on how we make the wine. So if a person says, oh, no, I don't I don't like that tannin thing at all, like that sounds horrible, then I go, okay, they probably don't want European wines. So let's move them more towards a new world wine, which we tend to make our wines a little silkier and a little softer. So they're still dry. They just don't necessarily have tannin. So the dryness is really a second element to that is really how much sugar or fruitiness is in the wine. And that's a different definition altogether. What's the best question you have ever been asked? If a person was to ask me like, Pinotage is an obscure grape out of South Africa. What is your favorite Pinotage that you've ever had? And it's like, well, that's a grape that's hard for a lot of people to love, including myself. So if somebody's going to ask me about something really kind of obscure like that, I'll probably have an answer for them. But at the same time, I kind of enjoy the fact that they, they've kind of done their homework and they've been tasting things from around the world and they, they're curious about little microcosms of what's going on. When you mentioned the South African grape, for example, mm -hmm. and you said it's really hard to love, mm -hmm. is there an incentive to try to love certain kinds of wine or learn to like certain kinds of wine? Is it you have to make an effort to expose your palate? And, and how do you, is that something you want to do? Is that something people that love wine are trying to do? And if so, how do they 
how do they do it? Yeah, it's an interesting question because, you know, there are times where you can just try something over and over and over and just cannot find love in your heart for it at all. And then at some point, you just give up and say, why do I need to love that? I don't need to love everything. It's just like I don't have to love every kind of music. I don't necessarily have to love every kind of grape varietal. Um, on the other hand, sometimes, you know, people are a little too quick to judge. And so you might try two or three Malbecs or two or three Pinotages and say, you know, that grape just isn't for me. And they just didn't have enough exposure to it to really find the style that might actually appeal to them. So to give you an example with Pinotage, it's a grape uh, that has a almost like a burnt rubber kind of a smell to it. And when you taste this wine and you, you taste this strange vegetable burnt kind of petroleum smell and you go, geez, I, that just, I just can't find any love in my heart for it. Now, the people that grew up around that grape, they love it because that's their palate. And so typically people that have traveled to a particular area will find it easier to fall in love with something because they get they get where it's from, they get a lot of exposure to it, and over time they can open their, their mind to it. But then sometimes it just doesn't work for you regardless of what it is. You you can say, I don't like Ritzina. I've tried it a couple times and I've tried it five years ago. I tried it yesterday. I can't like the style of wine. So I don't know that you necessarily need to find love in your heart for everything. It's just more of a, sometimes giving it a chance and giving it you know a good a good exposure before you can really definitively say you don't like something. When you are going through that process of, of seeing if there is a love affair with a new kind of wine, what sense do you rely on most? Your taste buds, your smell, your sight? Your, what, is, what is the sense that you use most to convince yourself or discern whether you're going to join this love affair with a certain type of wine? I think really it all comes down to taste. I mean, when you are judging a wine, I participate in a lot of judgings, and you'll have a scale in front of you and one of the things that you're looking at, what's it look like visually and what does it smell like and those kind of things. But really, ultimately, the biggest amount of points are all about taste. And there are just some wines that are really kind of peculiar and they just don't necessarily work for everybody. And somebody else finds love in their heart. So let's say, for example, you take food. That's a little easier for people to relate to sometimes. When I was a kid, the last thing I wanted to ever eat was mushrooms. I hated mushrooms, hated Brussels sprouts, hated beets. Well, I love all those things now. It took a long time to fall in love with those, and it took you know my palate changing as I got older to actually see that I could like these same things that I thought I would never, ever like. So the same thing could be true with wine, especially if you're taking something that's kind of an odd or unusual style of wine. One of those styles would be uh, what's called a natural wine. So today there's a big trend in New York and Vegas and fancy places that are saying that there's this really cool wine out there called natural wine, which is tastes a little raw and funky. And that's cloudy. They don't use preservatives. They don't do a lot of the same techniques to the wine to make it as polished. And because it's kind of natural, that it's way more expensive and way out there for people. And I've tried a lot of that wine, and frankly, it does nothing for me. But it's a cool new thing, and so 
people will say, you know, I got to try to love that natural wine. Everybody's talking about it. Go ahead. <laughs> I've had it. Yeah. And I'm sure that the price has something to do with people's perception of taste. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Has your wine career made you more discerning about other foods and drinks? Oh, for sure. I think really, when you think about how you drink wine, you don't necessarily gulp it. Like if you have a beer, usually you take a big swallow and you don't think that much about every sip. But when you have wine, it, it kind of slows you down a little bit. Usually you swirl it a little and you smell it and you take a little taste. And you don't necessarily analyze every taste, but it's a different pace that you taste at. And you take little small sips. So as you do that and you're doing it with food, you also tend to be a little more thoughtful about your food and thinking about it as you're eating it, caring more about the actual flavors and how they kind of play together. So it's really a little bit more of a dance that you get engaged in more than if you were basically just drinking water. Is that how we would improve our palates by slowing down? Are there any other techniques like in te tequila, you take a certain kind of sip, you aerate the sip, you know, kind of noisily, and then you touch your palate with your the tequila and with your tongue. Yang, yang, I'm doing it right now as I'm talking to you. You can't, but um, you know, and, and 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 in my mind, I think to myself that does make the tequila taste better. I mean, it could be totally psychological in the whole process, but if I take that same technique and apply it to food, I find that I, well, number one, slow down, and number two, seems to be that I taste the food or appreciate the food or actually dislike the food more than just when I shove it in my gullet. But I don't know if that is really improving my palate over time unless I'm cognizant of the process. Do you think that we can improve our palates by some of the techniques that you use to become familiar with wine? Um, I think so. I mean, I think part of it is an awareness. And so as you take your time and you think about what is it that you like or what is it that you don't like rather than, oh, I just don't like that or, oh, I don't like this or, oh, that's really del delicious. Well, why? And so then if you can put words on it, it's helpful to then be able to identify what other things you might like so that in the future you can find an even a wider array of things that might be appealing to you. At the same time, the process that you're talking about, which like is like essentially an aeration in your mouth and you're allowing your, your taste buds a little bit more time and exposure to that, that liquid gives you the opportunity to taste the more of the subtleties and to be more aware of kind of the whole package of what, what you're doing. At the same time, that can also be tiring or fatiguing on your, on your palate. So when we're doing a judging, for example, we might have a hundred wines lined up and we have to taste all of them. And I usually will taste each wine three times before I move on. And you're tasting and you're spitting and you're tasting and you're spitting and you're tasting and you're spitting, but you're still having all this exposure to that wine in your mouth. And after a while, your, your tongue and your, your gums and everything starts getting tired from the acid and from the tannin and from the alcohol that's in your mouth. So it's very hard to keep your palate fresh. And so when you're talking about if you just had that one glass of wine and you're sitting at home and you're taking a little more time and you're swirling it and you're aerating it, yeah, that, that's not going to take your palate down and uh, you'll definitely notice more about the wine. Sometimes if you do that with a lot of wine, let's say you go to an event 
and there's a lot of wine there. Now, by the end of it, your your mouth is just exhausted, and so it, it's not as it's good for your palate to overdo the, the exposure to it when you're doing a lot. When you're handed a bottle of wine at a restaurant, what should you pay attention to? Should it be a certain temperature? Should the cork look a certain way or not look a certain way? What are the three key things that you should pay attention to other than the fact that this is, I mean, before you even drink it? The first thing is that most people don't even know why they're handing them the cork when they pull the cork out. So when they pull the cork out, they say, okay, here's the cork. And people look at it and go, okay, it looks fine to me. And they smell it and they don't even know what they're smelling for. In the old days, bad wine typically would smell like vinegar, but today that really almost never, ever happens. So what you're really looking for when you're smelling that cork is does it smell like mold? So about one out of every 40 to 50 bottles that have a cork will have a little bacteria that gets trapped inside the cork because the cork is like a sponge. And when that happens, it'll infuse that flavor of mold into the wine. And so that's just called simply, it's called corked. And you would say, oh, this cork smells like mold. Um, I'm not sure, but the wine might smell or taste like that as well. And if it does, then you just ask for a fresh bottle and they get credit for it and nobody cares. And you basically start all over. And the next one should not have a cork that smells bad. So it's just a really random thing about, you know, what you're smelling for, but it does happen quite frequently. And the difference between mold and earth is pretty profound, but they both are a little on the kind of funky side. So when you smell the wine and it smells like earth or mushroom, that's okay because that's what it's supposed to smell or taste like if it's from the earth. But if it smells like a wet towel or cardboard or something that got, you know, kind of mildewy, that's what you're looking for when you're smelling that cork. The second thing is really red wine should never be warm. It should always be 70 or, or less uh, in temperature. So really the perfect range is probably between 64 and 70 in, in temperature. So if you're in a restaurant where they don't take care of the wine and it's like the bottles of wine are sitting, you know, in a hot area that's right by a pizza oven or something, that's going to make the wine taste absolutely horrible. And secondly, so you're looking for temperature, of course. And then uh, ultimately, you're just looking to make sure that you enjoy the wine. Now, you can't really actually send it back if you don't like it, if you're buying the whole bottle. What you're really looking for is, is it corked? Is it faulty in any way? Or is there any other issue that could be a problem? Another thing to kind of look for on the cork is sometimes there's little trails of wine that go up the cork, but the whole cork isn't saturated. And usually what that means is that the wine got really hot at one point in its life and the wine was trying to get out of the bottle. And whenever the wine gets really hot, that will usually ruin the, the structure of the wine forever, even if you put it, get it cool again and put it back in a, in a nice cellar. So once it gets hot, it's pretty much destroyed. So if you see these trails up the cork, that's something to look for as well. Well, these are good because then you can, before you sample it and say, I don't like it, you could actually send it back. But once you sample it and say, I just don't like it, unless, what if you sample it and it just tastes like it's it's moldy, but you didn't notice it with the cork? Yeah, then, you know, I think it, it all depends on how you approach things in life. If you're really nice and gracious, it's amazing what you can get you know, people to do for you. So if you just turn your nose up at it and say, this is bad, take it away, then usually they'll take it away, but they're going to be very gracious about helping you from there on. If on the other hand, you said, 
I'm not really an expert or anything, but I'm, I know that sometimes wines can have a, a cork problem and this one sells, smells a little musty. Would you, would you mind trying this or having your, your uh, sommelier or your, your manager or whoever it is, give this a try and see what they think. And a lot of times they'll just say, don't worry about it. We'll go get you another bottle and they just get credit for it anyway. So it's it just depends on how you do that. The other thing that happens is a lot of times people are in a restaurant and they don't want to order a whole bottle of wine, but they want to order a glass, but maybe you only want to have one glass that night and you want to make sure you really enjoy it. It's really not that unusual to ask for a little mini taste of something that's by the glass so that that way you don't get stuck with it because the bottle's already open anyway, unlike a, you know ordering a full bottle for your table. If you just said graciously, is there any way I could try a little, you know, a small taste of that before I do it? And if you're thinking about two wines, ask for a little taste of both of them at the same time so you can decide. Otherwise, you got to make this person do three trips to go get you a glass of wine versus they come back. You take a little sip of both and tell them which one you prefer. That's fantastic advice because I was wondering if it was a good deal to try wines by the glass, and that answers that answers the question. What's what's a reasonable price? I know this is a difficult one because it depends on what you're looking for, where you're dining. But what's a reasonable price to pay for a bottle of wine at a restaurant? Well, the one thing that most people aren't aware of is how the how uh, pricing works in restaurants. So, in general, when you're getting a wine by the glass. Whatever they paid for that bottle is usually what you're paying by the glass. So if it's an $8 glass of wine, they've probably paid $8 for that bottle wholesale. So it's traditionally a four-time markup for whatever it is by the glass. And when it's wine by the bottle, it's usually a three-time markup. So if it was $8 a bottle wholesale, they will charge you $24. If it was a $50 bottle wholesale, they'll charge you $150. So it's standard to have these kind of markups in the restaurant industry because they don't make very much money on food and most of their money is made on booze and on wine. So if they don't sell booze and wine at a high markup, they'll go out of business. So ultimately, people don't like those kind of pricing structures, but that's pretty common. So I find wines that are usually going to be 25 to 50 are you know pretty pretty average to good wines in a restaurant and you should be able to find something in that same price point really uh in most restaurants if they know what they're doing in the store i would say anything between 12 and 20 is where you're starting to get into more quality wines Whereas the stuff that's usually 9.99, 7.99 is usually super mass produced and manipulated to the degree you, you don't want to know about. It'll be pleasant, but it won't be complex or it won't necessarily taste like real wine. It might start tasting like, like candy. Why is mass produced kind of frowned upon or not seen as quality as smaller batches? Is there technical reasons they do things? They mani- when you say they manipulate it, what are some of the things that they do to manipulate it? And why is mass produced? I mean, it's, it's, it's common in a lot of industries, right? But why specifically in the wine industry? There's a lot of things that people don't necessarily understand about how wine is made. But to give you an example, if you have a, like a vineyard that's five miles square, that's a lot of vines. It's very hard to hand pick all that 
so usually those are planted in a certain way that they can be picked by machines. When a machine goes through and goes through a vineyard and picks things, it kind of has these little battering rams that hit the vines and makes all the grapes fall off. Well, pretty much everything on that plant falls off. So if there's birds, squirrels, mice, spiders, earwigs, all of that stuff gets in with the grapes as well as all the green grapes, all the unripe grapes, all the rotted grapes, all the stems and sticks and other things. So they don't have time when they're mass producing something to go through and sort all that out. So it all just gets dumped into these big giant vats and they make wine out of it. And so you get a totally different quality than if you go through the vineyard by hand and you only pick the best bunches and you then bring them back and you take all the leaves out and the sticks out and you you know make sure there's nothing in there that you don't want and then you're doing a nice focused small batch. So that's the beginning part. The second part of manipulation is is where it really comes into how you make the wine. And today, more than any time in the past, there's a lot of fancy additives that you can use in a wine to create different effects. So, for example, there's a dye that you can use that's a purple kind of dye, and that will make the wine look much darker than it was. It would be look really watery, but you add this purple dye, and all of a sudden it looks like this thick, dark, rich wine. You can use gum emulsifiers, which give it a texture that makes it feel richer and thicker than it was before that. You can add acid if it's a grape area that's too hot. You can add these bags of acid, and that's called acidifying. That's something that sticks out in the wine that most people wouldn't be able to tell, but experts can kind of start tasting these things. They do other kinds of flavoring components that they don't talk about. And you start tasting these wines that almost taste like they're artificial cherry cola kind of a thing and you say wow it's weird how so many of these wines have the same exact tasting profile and it's because people like that sweetness and they're essentially stripping out acids or adding acids or adding flavors or adding dye or adding these emulsifiers and wine is one of the and all alcohol has no requirement for ingredients so so there's no ingredients on tequila and there's no ingredients on a bottle of wine what should one consider when they're thinking of buying wine at a grocery store versus a wine shop? Depending on the grocery store, are mostly bought in large quantities in a, a centralized buying office. So, for example, in Washington, we have QFCs and Safeways. Both of those have hundreds of stores, and all of this product is bought in Pennsylvania by some major buyer and they are supplying all their stores with these wines. So the buyer in the individual store itself will usually only have what's about 5% flex. And flex means all these SKUs or items were given to them by corporate that they have to put in their stores. And then we have 5% flexibility on what else they can add. So not a lot of variety. A lot of these wines have to be available to all these stores all year long in order to make it efficient for them to put these brands into their system. When you go to a smaller wine shop, the wine shop is all flex. They don't have centralized buying, but they have to pay more for the wine because they're not buying 
a thousand cases at once, they're maybe buying one case at a time. So they don't have the buying power, but they also have the flexibility and they will usually find things that are much more interesting, maybe slightly a little bit more expensive, but you're getting, you're getting a true helper there because those people are true enthusiasts. The people that work, typically work in most of these larger grocery settings, they basically just place an order and put it on the shelf and place another order and put it on the shelf. And so it's hard to keep really good wine professionals in that setting because they aren't really choosing much and really doing the work that you would do if you were in a, a much smaller setting. But you're not really paying more at a wine store than you would at a grocery store. So there could be an incentive. I mean, are you? Sure, you can be because they don't have the buying power to buy the same product. So even if, let's say, for example, that you had, let's just say Kendall Jackson Chardonnay. Kendall Jackson Chardonnay is probably in almost every grocery store. That means that the grocery store probably bought something like 20,000 cases of it and they get a great price. When you would go to this little wine shop, they maybe buy one case at a time. So they're getting a whole different price on that than the person who bought this quantity to fill all their grocery stores with. So they have to mark it up a little bit more because they're paying a little bit more. So the markups are typically very similar, but the price that they bought it for isn't. So that's why a lot of times you will see kind of the cooler, smaller wine shops not carry the same things that all the grocery does because they can't compete on price with those items. And frankly, a lot of those are a little more on the boring side anyway. So they like the little smaller production uh, wines that are a little bit more unique. That makes total sense. What are the best wines for having around the house? If you were going to have a very small, let's say you live in a very small space and you don't have a wine cabinet, but you want to be able to have a couple of key wines for when people come over or for you to enjoy on a regular basis. I always think that it's a good idea to have a couple of what I would call daily sippers. And daily sippers are things that are pretty affordable, you know, anywhere from, you know, say 10 to $20 that you can open anytime and you don't have to wait for a special occasion to crack it. And so usually those are going to be wines that are to your style that you enjoy, whether you like the European style wines or you like American style wines, you know, so then you kind of go from, you know, something that you have as a go-to and usually you have, if you're a red drinker, a couple of different reds and maybe a white or two to kind of play with. Some people don't really drink a lot of red because of allergies or something like that. So then they have their favorite kind of white. But I would say that in general, if you were to say, all right, what else do you need because you don't have a lot of space? What I would do is have something that you have almost like you think consider like a toolbox or a, a painter's palette that you have a couple of different tools depending on what you're going to need. So you have at least one sweet wine that's kind of not like a dessert wine, but some a little sweeter in case you're doing something sort of spicy like Thai food. Uh, you have something that's really dry and that like a white wine that's maybe a little bit more tart in case you're doing something that's kind of acidic. So like a lot of salads have vinaigrettes in them. So usually you need high acid to go with high acid and you need something on the sweeter side to go with something really spicy. So you have a couple of tools there and then maybe you have something that's really light and uh, like a light red, like a Pinot Noir or something like a Grenache for a, a lighter style seafood dish. Like say you're doing salmon or halibut or something, but you want red wine. So it's not a big meaty you know, wine. And then you probably have a couple of more dense, hearty wines for your meat dishes and just general sipping. And really right there. 
you could probably just have four or five different wines and that'll kind of cover you if you have like a small apartment you don't really have a lot of you know room for a cellar perfect that helps a lot all right so i have a question about the whole collectible collector world and i saw this show with the black sheep coke brother who's a big wine collector i think he was on 60 minutes recently and he's the guy that busted a big counterfeiter and he collects these ancient bottles of wine mm-hmm. and i started thinking how long do these wines last? When do they become undrinkable? And do people drink 200-year-old bottles of wine, and are they any good? And is there a rule of thumb for, you know, is there a rule of thumb when you store wine, for example, for yourself? Is there, do you stick the cork in? Is there a better way to preserve it? How long do these wine bottles last until they really suck, and then people are just paying for, I don't know what, prestige? Yeah, you know, the that that's an, goes into another misperception about wine that most people think that wine just gets better with age. And the reality is, first of all, most white wines are not designed to age. So they really should be drank in the first couple of years. The only real exception to that in general, just to, for efficiency of time, is the really only exception to that are sweet wines like dessert wines, Rieslings, things like that. They can typically last a lot longer because they have sugar. So maybe 15 to 20 to 25 years on some of the sweeter whites. Otherwise, most whites, three to four years, you should have already gone through that wine. The same thing would be true with wines that aren't meant to age when it comes to reds. So let's say you just bought a cheap grocery store bottle of red and it's sitting around three, four years, that wine is probably not going to get any better. If anything, it's going to start falling apart. So that's going to be a matter of how the wine was made and it's the texture. It's hard for me to describe how long wines will last because they're so different based on how they're made. So again, going back to what your your question was, is like, how long do they really last? I would say that the bulk of most wines should be drank between 8 and 12 years. And that over 12 years, you start really flipping the coin of whether or not this wine is going to be there when you want to drink it. And so there are a few exceptions that will go 30, 40 years. And those are big, meaty, hearty wines that had a lot of edge to them and they had a lot to to kind of soften up over time, but most wines don't. I we've I can't tell you how many times I've sat down and tried a whole lineup of first grow Bordeaux that are all three to five hundred dollars a bottle, and they're 20, 25 years old, and they're all they've all lost their fruit, and they are getting tired, and uh, people open them because well, they're fancy and they've been saving them forever, but really most of those wines don't last that long. And so people save wines way, way, way too long. So you know it's going to be good between usually 8 and 10. And some wines maybe all the way to 12 to 15. But really now you're talking about a small percentage of wines that can make it that long. So if you have a nice bottle of wine, doesn't matter how much it costs, I would drink it in its first 10 years. The problem with wine is it's, it's organic and it's still changing. It's evolving where if you take your tequila once it's bottled, it's incredibly stable, and it could sit there for 30 years, and it won't change one bit. Well, see, that's one of the benefits of my delicious tequila. Was there any question that I should have asked that you think, wow, that would have really been good to ask? 
in some communities, some some states, it's legal to bring in wine to restaurants. It's just most people don't think about doing it. And in general, the, the etiquette is that you're supposed to bring something in that they don't already have. So you're not trying to bring something in so it's cheaper. You're trying to bring in something that they don't carry. Maybe it's a special bottle to you. Though typically, the easiest way to do that is you would call ahead of time and you would say, what is your corkage policy? If the person answering the phone doesn't know what a corkage policy is, it's a high possibility that's a 16-year-old hostess who doesn't drink wine yet. So you would, in that case, ask for the manager. And if the manager doesn't know what a corkage policy is, then they probably don't allow you to bring the wine in. So in most places uh, that grow wine, like, say, Oregon, Washington, California, it's very – it's com- completely legal and accepted to bring wine in because it's kind of the community. Some places, Michigan, you know, Montana, they may not even know what that's, what that means. And so it doesn't mean it's illegal or it's not. It's just – it's not part of their culture. If you are bringing it in, you're expecting to pay something of a corkage fee, $10, $15, $20. But um, what I normally do is when they, when I do bring you something in, I ask the uh, waiter to bring me a, an additional glass. So let's say there's two of us at the table. I ask for a third glass. I don't tell them what it's for. And then when they open the wine and they pour me uh, a couple ounces, I say, this is for you take this and have it after your shift and then I then they pour us the rest of the wine. If you say bring a glass for yourself, they almost never will because they feel like they're begging. So you just ask for this mystery glass. They don't know what it's for. And if they say, oh, I can't drink, then just say, well, give it to the chef. And basically, it's a sacrifice you've given right from the beginning, which is this generosity that then will extend to a great service through your meal versus if you say, here's the end of the bottle that I didn't finish, go ahead and have it which is at the end of your meal is different. I want to be able to quiz you about wine all day, but going to be respectful of your time. But before we sign off, I have something that I call quick curious questions or QCQs, and it's just a way to get to know you better. So I'm going to ask you these questions. Other than wine, that's out of the question. What is your favorite under $100 purchase that you've made in the last six months? That has nothing to do with wine? Yeah. Believe it or not, it's a uh, it's a steamer that I bought to steam my hardwood floors. <laughs> what brand? I, I love it's, that. What what brand? It's a it's a Hoover, and it's uh, something I've been you know I have hardwood floors. I've lived in this house for twelve years, and you know a lot of things just kind of do a surface clean. And when I discovered this thing, I found wow, that's fantastic. And the reason that I love it is because I cook all the time. It's my favorite hobby, and so after you get like the other night, I had nine people at my house, and everybody's in the kitchen cooking. Well, by the time they leave, the floors are pretty trashed. So I really want to get that kind of base clean down so that the next day my feet aren't all gross from all the food that was on the floor. So cleaning is a big deal when you're doing all the cooking. That's a great one. And all of these things will be in the show notes. And that's why I like to get some of these ideas that are outside of your realm of expertise. And then what is something that you believe, and it can be related to your profession or not, but what is something that you believe that most people think is crazy? Hmm. Wow. Well, in general, it would probably come down to food. 
because I, I think that uh, a lot of people have very strong opinions about food. And one of the things that I think is really amazing is what can go together, and especially when it comes to things that are really earthy, along with things that are really sweet. And so to me, like one of my favorite combinations was foie gras and uh, dark chocolate. And that's just, and we, I also did a, a farro dish the other day with uh, dark chocolate and mushrooms. And people, that just sounds crazy to them. Like, what? what? Chocolate with mushrooms? It's amazing how it works. I, I will confess to you, I am one of the few people in the world that does not like chocolate. But, I mean, it's not like I dislike it, but I just I just don't love chocolate. But when you talk about those combinations, especially the foie gras and the chocolate, dark chocolate, it, it kind of is intriguing to me. It makes me want to go out and try some earth and sweetness. Just give us a little bit of a scoop on your Seattle Uncorked and let us know the best place for people to connect with you. Well, Seattle Uncorked is something that I started a long time ago, which is basically a way for people to get together and meet friends around wine. On the East Coast, they have wine clubs, which are basically social clubs for people who get together who like wine. And on the West Coast, there's so many wineries that the wineries have what's called a wine club. And what that is, is a place for them, basically a, an agreement that you've made to buy their wine on a like quarterly basis. And so when I started Seattle Uncorked here, I basically was bringing an East Coast club idea to the West Coast, which is you're not buying wine, you're getting together and drinking wine. So it's actually more of a real club rather than a, a buying agreement. So basically with Seattle Uncorked, we do cooking classes. We do focused events that have to do with like uh, a theme like Rosé Revival or Cabernet Classic or Sexy Syrah, something like that around particular grapes. We do them in lots of different communities in the in the Northwest, but primarily in the greater Seattle area. And if people are interested in wine and they live anywhere in the Northwest, they can look me up through seattleandcork.com. Do you have events where people should be flying in to participate or do you have to be part of the club to participate? Well, the the club basically is doesn't cost anything to join. It just is you putting yourself onto a list so that you get notified about different events. So for the most part, anybody's welcome at all of the events that we do. So people could come from anywhere if they wanted to, if they found an event that seemed appealing to them. We don't we don't check to see if anyone's a club member, if they're going to come to an event or not. You know, Becky, one thing before we sign off that a lot of people say that wine is, doesn't work for their bodies really well. And there's obviously lots of different possible reasons for that. But one of the misconceptions that happens that a lot of people are not aware of is why they have a problem with a certain kind of wine. So if I could just talk about that real briefly, red wines are very high in histamines. And so when people drink a red wine and they get headaches or they get stuffy from red wine, um, what they should do is try taking an antihistamine and see if that will help them not get headaches or get stuffy from it. They think it's sulfites, but sulfites are really a, a preservative that is used heavily in white wines. And uh, they, what that does is help lock in the clarity and preserve the wine from getting cloudy. So if they don't have a problem with white wines, they don't have a problem with sulfites. If they have a problem with white wines and not reds, they probably have a sulfite problem. If they have a problem with reds and not whites, they probably have a histamine problem. Oh, that's good information. My problem is I have a grape problem. 
<laughs> That's the truth. I mean, I, I get, I, I kind of get ill from eating grapes. So I have a source problem, unfortunately. But given the fact that my affinity for alcohol is, well, particularly brown, I, right. I feel like I'm not missing out too much. Although living in wine country or near wine country can be very frustrating at times. And sometimes I just subject myself nonetheless. But well, thank you so much for educating me. I feel like I've gone from zero to somewhat knowledgeable without even taking a sip. And yet, I know what wine does to me, but I'm now intrigued to give it another shot. I really have enjoyed talking with you, and I'm sure the listeners are going to come away with a lot of juicy tidbits. So thank you very much. Uh, My pleasure. Have a great day. You too. All right. Cheers. David LeClaire is a certified sommelier from the Court of Master Sommeliers, a wine event producer, and the founder of Seattle Uncorked. He can be reached at seattleuncorked.com. Thanks so much for listening. I really hope you enjoyed the episode. Before you take off, I have a quick question and a few more things to let you know about. One, you can find show notes and all resources mentioned at appliedcuriositylab.com forward slash blog. And the question, would you enjoy joining the ranks of curiosity seekers and adventurous thinkers? If so, you are invited to join the tribe of the curious. You'll receive Quick Curiosity Monday. This short weekly email is curiosity lube for your brain. It consists of ideas I'm pondering, curiosities the tribe has shared, and things that I'm enjoying that I suspect you might too. Just go to appliedcuriositylab.com to join, or you can probably just pick your favorite search engine and type in Tribe of the Curious. And let's connect online at Becky Saltzman on Twitter and on Facebook at Applied Curiosity Lab. Finally, in order to avoid missing insights from outside the boundaries of ordinary, subscribe to Apply Curiosity Lab Radio on iTunes, YouTube, Stitcher, and all the other places podcasts hide and wait to be discovered. In the meantime, elevate curiosity.